The text for our sermon this afternoon comes to us from 1 Peter, the third chapter, and we'll read together the first seven verses. And here Peter is giving instruction again on the relationship between wives and husbands. So beginning at chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughter if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the book of 1 Peter has a tremendous amount to say about the Christian faith and about how that ought to work out in our lives. Last week I gave a sermon on 1 Peter, the first couple of verses of chapter 1. And there it talked about Christians and the reason that they have for joy, because they have a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we saw that this recognition of a living hope, it must have an impact on the way that we live. And so Peter builds upon that in chapter 1, by calling Christians to a holy life, to holy living. For Christians need to remember that they are God's people, God's elect. And as such, they live as foreigners, as strangers in this ungodly world. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter begins to give practical and tangible examples of how Christians can live out their faith in a way that lets their light shine to an ungodly world. Peter says that Christians, they must live as good citizens in the way that they let their face shine before an unbelieving government. And then he proceeds to tell Christian slaves that they must represent Christ in the way that they live as they submit to their masters. And then in our text for today, Peter gives instruction to Christian wives and husbands about how they must live out their faith within the institution of marriage. And so I proclaim to you God's word today under this theme, the Christian faith and its implications for marriage. We'll see in the first place the loving submission of a godly wife. In the second place, the true beauty of a godly wife. And in the third place, the compassionate response of a godly husband. So Peter begins in verse 1 by addressing Christian wives, and particularly he has some words for those who have unbelieving husbands, and he commands them with this need to submit, this, 
this command about submission and headship, which is so sensitive in our culture today. For many, they use this command about submission and headship to mock Christianity as an archaic and as an outdated religion. And yet those who do so, they very often put little effort into trying to understand the, the context or the meaning behind this command. Sorry. <clears throat> so the first of all, we need to consider this command and how we should view it within the larger context of the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about headship and submission? Well, when we do this, we have to admit that though in the culture today, it's not popular to talk about male headship, it's clear from God's word that God wants a wife to submit to the headship of her husband. And this is clear from our reading in Ephesians as well. Just as Christ is appointed head of the church, so God has given men a special responsibility, a special role as the head of their wife and of their household. And we might try to wiggle around this a little bit by suggesting that this aspect of submission and headship, well, it only applies in a Christian marriage with two God-fearing partners. But the text from today, it contradicts that idea. For Peter is telling Christian wives that they need to submit to their unbelieving husbands. Even though they're unbelieving, they need to respect their husbands as the head of their household because marriage is a God-ordained institution. And so there's a clear biblical basis for this belief in male headship and submission. And yet, we also need to pay some attention to the cultural context of this command, how it was understood in the Greco-Roman first century world, the world in which Peter lived. And as we look at the culture, we need to recognize that wives had virtually no legal status, no legal rights apart from their husbands. It was a society in which he dominated family life. And so you could imagine then the possible impact of a wife converting to Christianity. In fact, it was actually unheard of. It was absurd to think that a wife would worship a god other than the gods of her husband's. And if a wife were to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ rather than follow the gods of her husband, she could be perceived as being rebellious. There was a potentially scandalous or embarrassing situation. And these wives, as they went to Christian worship services, there was also the potential that they would meet people from a different social class, something which their husbands may not approve of. And you can see then why in the Greco-Roman world, the culture and these unbelieving husbands, they might frown upon a Christian wife. For this culture, they noticed from the Christian teachings that in the Christian faith, husband and wives were viewed as equals. They were equal under the lordship of Jesus Christ, even though they had different roles. And so when Peter encourages Christians to submit to the headship of their husbands. He's doing so in a way that shows that he's confirming a biblical command on the one hand, 
But on the other hand, he's actually helping to put the Greco-Roman culture at ease. He's showing them that Christian wives do respect the headship of their husband. And yet when we look at the larger context of 1 Peter, he shows these Christian wives that although they are called to submit to the headship of their husband, they are not inferior or less important in the sight of God. And it's ironic then that many who want to use and abuse this concept of submission as being offensive to women, they don't recognize that Peter is actually speaking to women in a radically different way. He's showing them that they have one loyalty to Jesus Christ and that in him they are equals. They are both called to bring honor and glory to his name. For this actually is the reason or the motive behind this command. Peter wants these Christian wives with unbelieving husbands, he wants them to see their life as an opportunity to witness to the Christian faith, to be a testimony to their husbands. In some ways, Peter is telling them that their actions can speak louder than words. For in that culture, it would have been shameful for a wife to try and instruct her husband. And yet Peter shows that they can teach them a great deal by the way that they live their life. Peter wants their loving submission, their lifestyle, to make a statement to the unbelieving culture and to be a testimony to these unbelieving husbands. So what then are the implications for us today from this command? Well, it's interesting to note that Peter, he doesn't give explicit commands on what this submission should look like. He doesn't follow up this command with a long list of do's and don'ts. And so while I want to be very clear that the biblical belief in male headship and submission has a clear biblical basis, we also need to recognize that what this submission looks like, how it's expressed, it may vary between different people, between different cultures, and in different places. For example, it would not be fair of us today to take this example that Peter gives in the Greco-Roman world and to equate this with what submission should look like today here in our culture. For in our culture today, it's not offensive or scandalous if a, if a wife was to go out for lunch by herself or to go out somewhere without her husband or even to work outside the home. So as Christians, we need to be cautious that we don't prescribe exactly what other people's submission should look like. For Peter, he doesn't feel the need to either. The key point is that husbands and wives, they should relate to each other in this relationship of submission and headship in a way that provides a positive reflection of the Christian faith to the world around them. And this submission then of a Christian wife in some ways, it's a way of her reflecting the love of Christ in her marriage. And just as it's seen in Ephesians 5, this command should never be seen apart from its connection with the love of Christ. So it doesn't mean that wives need to endure an abusive relationship, whether verbally or physically, 
because that doesn't fall in line. That's not in accordance with the will of God. And this isn't a license for men to be overbearing or domineering because that goes against the very heart, the very nature of what God wants marriage to look like. God wants our marriages to reflect the love which Christ has for his church. And so in this command, wives are called to make a statement to the unbelieving world and to their unbelieving husbands about the beauty of the Christian faith. And it's good then for us today to consider what do our marriages reflect to the world around us? Do they reflect Christ? Or do people see husbands that bicker about wives and wives that bicker about husbands? For our marriages, they should reflect something that is truly beautiful. And we see this in the second point from the perspective of the wife, the true beauty of a godly wife. So Peter turns to the topic about what is truly beautiful. And he begins by providing some guidelines about where not to find true beauty. He encourages these wives not to look for beauty in their outward appearance, not in things like their hairstyle or their jewelry or their clothes. And that's not to say that these things are not important at all to Peter, that women can pay no regard to them. That's not his point. But he wants women to look at their beauty in a way that's different than the culture around them. For beauty is not a matter of outward appearance, but it's a matter of the heart. And so if I may, let me say to the ladies in our midst, and perhaps to the younger ladies, that you face a particularly difficult challenge. For you live in a world that scoffs at the concept of Christian beauty. You live in a world that tells you that your beauty is defined by how you are viewed in the eyes of men. You are looked at more and more as objects and less and less like people. And you're offered a vision of beauty that will not be attained. It will leave you empty and feeling worthless. And so we can give thanks today that God doesn't see beauty that way. And you shouldn't either. For true beauty, that's a matter of the inner person, says Peter. It's a gentle and quiet spirit that is of great worth in the sight of God. It's a beauty that will not fade. It will not diminish. Because it has nothing to do with your outward appearance. Instead, true beauty is found in the depths of one's relationship with Jesus Christ and their dependence upon the Lord. For consider the words of Proverbs 31, verse 30. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. True beauty is found in one's walk with God, in a peaceful relation with, relationship with Him, and something that's reflected in their lifestyle. And Peter goes on to say then that the godly women of the past, they have always sought their beauty in this way. He, he points to the example of Sarah as someone who put her hope in the living God, and she found beauty in her loving submission to her husband Abram. 
It's likely that Peter here is using Sarah also with a view to the Jewish tradition, which saw her as a woman of great virtuous character. He is setting the bar, so to speak. He gives them an example of virtuous character that they can strive after. And these women would have held Sarah in high regard. For after all, they were, they were daughters of this promise to Abram and Sarah. And so Peter encourages them to follow her example. And this godly view of Christian beauty, it's important for us today. For the source of true beauty does not change with time or with culture. God-fearing women of all times and places should seek to find their beauty within themselves and within their relationship with God. And as men, we can ask ourselves today, do we appreciate the value of a godly wife or of a godly woman? Do we praise the characteristics of a quiet and a gentle spirit? Do we admire those who have a quiet, a content, a solid relationship with the Lord? And women, may you desire to be truly beautiful. May you seek to be that godly wife. May you desire to have a close relationship with the Lord, a committed life of devotion and prayer. And may you be willing to become the kind of women that God wants you to be. Now, after six verses in which Peter is addressing wives, he turns in our last point to address the conduct of husbands. And although only one verse is used, there's actually a lot that's said here about the conduct of husbands. And the main question from a contextual standpoint is we need to decide whether Paul here is, or Peter here is addressing husbands with Christian wives or husbands who are married to unbelievers. And it's often been assumed that the wives in question are Christians. For if we follow our English translations, they're described as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. And although it's fair to say that the application of this message is the same whether the wives are Christian wives or unbelieving wives, it appears from the larger context of 1 Peter and also from the language of the original Greek that Peter here is actually giving instructions to husbands who are married to unbelieving wives. For we need to remember that our passage today, it's actually part of a much larger section that draws all the way back to chapter 2, verse 11. And Peter introduces that section with these words. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And then Peter, he proceeds to give these four practical examples of how Christians can be a witness to the society around them. And we saw that earlier. So in verse 13, Peter instructs Christians on how they are to relate to the government, to an unbelieving government. In verse 18, he tells slaves about how they are to relate to their masters. And the language used to describe these masters, it can indicate that these are unbelieving masters. And then in our text from today, 
There are the two examples, the one beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, where there certainly are wives that are being addressed with unbelieving husbands, and then our example here in verse 7. And so the pattern that seems to be followed is that Peter is trying to make a statement to Christians, and in husbands in this case, about how they are to reflect their faith to unbelieving wives. And some have said that in that era, wives would simply have followed the faith of their husbands. But if we look at the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he makes clear that there were instances where husbands had unbelieving wives. There were exceptions to this, and it appears that this is what Peter had in mind. For Peter's motive, as it has been with the previous three examples, is that Christians show their faith by their godly conduct. He wants the attitude of the Christian partner to shine as a light before the unbelieving partner. And that's why he tells husbands to live in a considerate or a compassionate manner. It can also be read as he, he describes them as wanting to live in an understanding way. Even though these husbands are the head of their house, and culturally they have the right to demand what they want, Peter recognizes that these Christian husbands, they cannot compel, they cannot force their wives into Christianity. Instead, they ought to represent the love and the joy and the respect of the Christian faith. And they do this in the way that they treat their wives with respect as the weaker partner. And this certainly alludes to the fact that, by and large, men are physically stronger than women. However, Paul also, Peter here also has in mind the fact that wives here are culturally and socially the weaker partner as well. Though these husbands lived in a world where they could demand what they wanted, they were the masters of their own domain, Peter is commanding them to treat their wives with respect, even though they are in this weaker position. In fact, Peter goes so far as to say that he wants them to be treated as equals. He wants them to be treated as one would treat a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. And although our English translations, they read slightly differently, Peter argues that the husband must treat their wives with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. And this line, it seems to imply that these wives were Christians. But without getting into all the technical jargon of the original Greek, let me just suggest that a more literal translation would go something as follows. And treat her with respect even as, or just as, you would treat heirs of the gracious gift of life. Peter is in fact calling their husbands to treat their unbelieving wives with respect, just as, or in the same way that they would treat a fellow believer in Christ. Peter wants these Christian husbands to live out their faith in a way that their unbelieving partners know what it is to experience the love of Christ. And though the culture around them treated them as inferiors, Peter is making clear that God sees them as the same. And this verse then, it has implications for the conduct of these godly men. 
For Peter goes on to explain that if they misuse, if they abuse this position of authority, even though culturally they have the ability to do so, then their prayer life, it will be hindered. And that's a truth that still applies today. If you are overbearing, disrespectful, and ungodly in the way that you lead your home, this will have an impact on your faith life. You cannot expect to be a brute in your own home, to run roughshod over your wife and your kids, and to think that God is going to be eager to hear your prayers. An ungodly walk of life, it has consequences. And so this is a call to men then to live as examples, to show faith and commitment in a way that makes a statement to the ungodly world. For if we don't act this way, and if we don't lead this way, then not only does God notice, but our wives and our children will notice as well. So men, may we show in our lives that although husband and wives have different roles, that we recognize our wives as equals. For we need to constantly remember those words from Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives as your own bodies. And he who loves his wife loves himself. May it be that in our marriages, we do our best to shower our wives with the love that Christ has shown to us. May we be a witness to the world of God's love and commitment. May we give of ourselves generously, always looking to the best interests of our spouse. And in this way, may our marriages bring glory and honor to the name of God. Amen.